You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Point number one, God's people tested. God's people tested. We jump in here. Look at verse one, verses one to three. First Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, in camp between Soko and Azekah, in Ephistamine, and Saul, the men of Israel, were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. So picture this happening in your mind right now. It's pretty dramatic. And the Philistines stood on one mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley that was between them. So verses 1 to 3 tell us there's a showdown of two armies. Setting the stage for what would be an astonishing battle. You have one army, the text says, on one mountain. You have the other army on the other mountain. And then you have a valley that is in between these two mountains and these two armies. If you're like me, you like maps. If you're like me, you like pictures. We actually have a picture here of the actual valley of Elah as it is present day. I had the privilege of being somewhere close to this. We weren't exactly sure if we were looking. We didn't have a guide with us, but we weren't exactly sure. But we were anywhere. We got caught up in the mountains somewhere up here or whatever, but we were, we were close, okay? But here's the actual valley of Elah, and you can see it kind of running right through here. And so the Philistines can't. They were on this side, and then the Israel camp, they would be on this side with Saul, so we're kind of looking from Azekah here, and then once the, uh, the Philistines were defeated, you know they lose, right? You know they lose? Okay, good, good. And then they flee this way, and then they have a little, here's a little creek where David would have found his five smooth stones, but this is the act, this is what it looks like, and this is what it looked like present day, and this is a real place, this really happened, and, and we're excited to be able to see that, so you kind of get your visual senses going there as we look into this text and try to imagine what this scene must of been like, look now at verse 4. In verse 4 it says, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath, Boo. Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. Oh, can I say this, by the way? So when I was in Romania, I was preaching with a translator the whole time. I don't miss that, all right? This is, this is nice right now. This is nice right now, all right? You know my style. You try to get my, stop, stop. Anyways, I'm sorry about that. I just thought of that. Well, this is great. Anyways, okay. With a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, verse 6, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. Some of you are like, what does that mean? I'll tell you in a second. And his shield bearer went before him, okay? So this is where the story begins to capture the imagination of all who are reading it. Why? This giant Goliath is introduced. Notice, first of all, um, he's a champion. It's the only time in the Old Testament that word is used. What that means is he was the Philistine representative of going to battle kind of one-on-one. He's exactly what he's being portrayed as here. He's their champion. He's going to go out and take on all challengers. Notice his height was six cubits and a span. Best estimate star, that's nine feet, nine inches tall. That's tall, okay? Some think more, some think a little bit less, but probably pretty accurate. Nine feet, nine inches tall. The guy was huge. He was intimidating to look at. And especially when the Israelites were known to be typically smaller. 
Then he has his armor. The text gives detail about this. It's painting a picture in God's word. Bronze helmet, a coat of scale of armor that would have weighed somewhere around 126 pounds. Okay? That's more than some of us weigh in this room right now. Just imagine. Armor. Armor on his legs, like knee and shin guards. He had a javelin or a sword. It was across his back. Then he had a spear, a shaft like a weaver's beam, and the spearhead. Okay, the head of the spear itself weighed probably 20 pounds, 15 to 20 pounds. Just the head of the spear. Wow. Ever take a 20-pound weight and try to do that? He had that as a spear, the head of his spear. So his armor in total weighed somewhere between 150 to 200 pounds. How strong and big do you have to be just to have your armor walking around with 200 pounds weighing you down? All that to say this, this guy was big, this guy was bad, and I presume he was very ugly. All right? Is that fair? Is that fair? I just, I just presume that he wasn't that nice to look at. So how can we describe all of this and not show a picture? Fair, fair? Okay, because I like this too. Let's show, this is an artist's rendition of what this might have looked like. We have no idea whether this is fully accurate, but this is pretty good detail according to what the Bible tells us. There's an artist thinking that this is what this might have been looked at and the mocking, of course, of the Philistines. Here's another artist's rendition of what it might have looked like. Oh, wait, wait. I mean, I'm not so sure about that, whatever, but, you know, so <laughs> this says Saul is wimp. Saul is a wimp. That's great. That's great. That makes me laugh. Anyways, anyways, so, so we're getting the idea of what's happening here, okay? Goliath is introduced, and he now begins to speak. Look at verse 8. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Goliath, why have you come out to drop for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Notice that. Saul is the one. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So here's what Goliath does. He comes forward. He questions the resolve of the Israelites. He dares them to fight. And then he defies the army as a whole. He heaps shame upon them. And then notice verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. All right, so right here, loved ones, this becomes what? This becomes the test of God's people. Goliath is a symbol of the test that has confronted God's people right here. And this is the test and kind of test that we will face in our lives at times as well. But the test that they are facing, unfortunately, it looks like the Israelites did not study very hard. Don't you agree? So Goliath is smart here. Whoever told him to do this, whatever, he's smart because he goes up in his armor, his massive frame, his massive size, and he's parading back and forth his strength in front of God's people. And what ended up happening, before he even drew a sword, he had already won. Just by his intimidation, just by his threatening, just by his fear, the Israelites were done. No one wanted to fight. They were shaking in their boots. Their knees were knocking. They were greatly dismayed. They were feeling all this fear. Now what about Saul? Saul's mentioned. Saul was the military leader. The Bible tells us in previous chapters that Saul was literally head and shoulders above the rest of Israel. So naturally, you think Saul would be the one to fight Goliath. He's king. He's a leader. He's big. He's been a military leader in the past. But this doesn't even seem to be an option right here. Why, why? Because when the Spirit, listen carefully, when the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, 
then with God's spirit also went God's courage. And so now Saul's not seeing things in the eyes of God. Saul's now seeing things through the eyes of men. Now throughout this chapter, Goliath in many ways will symbolize, will symbolize our enemy, the devil. A symbol of that. And isn't it one of the greatest weapons of our enemy to try to intimidate us, threaten us, accuse us, and place fear in us. Isn't that true? And we think of how much fear paralyzes us when unchecked by God's word, and especially when we're not living in the fear of the Lord. Again, verse 11 makes it plainly clear. God's people had lost their fear of the Lord. Now listen, loved ones, here's some biblical counseling right here, which is very helpful. When God's people lose their fear of the Lord, it's replaced with something else. If it's not the fear of the Lord, by the way, an absence of the fear of the Lord is unbelief. The root of not fearing God is I don't believe in the power of my God upon my life. And so because I don't believe, then what replaces my fear of the Lord has to be now some level of, some form of the fear of man. Because if I'm not looking at God, then who am I looking at? Not God. If I'm not looking at God, I don't like my chances in finding much courage in my life. Because he's the only source of my true courage. That's why the fear of the Lord is everything. But Saul and the army, they're not fearing the Lord. So their only other option is something other than God. That's never going to work out well. Don't you agree? That's never going to be good for them or for us. So they had the fear of men now, and the fear of man is what paralyzes us. And this is what happens when unbelief starts to take root within our lives. Notice, notice, their unbelief, God fades into the background, and when God fades into the background again, then we're left with ourselves and whatever we see in the world around us. This is why Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, listen, listen, the fear of man lays a snare. Okay, so when we are filled with a lack of fear of God and we have a fear of man, that's laying a trap for our lives. It's laying a snare. But then the text says, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. You see, safety in the fear of the Lord, a snare, a trap in the fear of man. Now, notice in verse 11 the source of the Israelites' fear. Can you see it? Can you see it? Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Look at the text. Be students. Be students. Here it is. When did they start to become truly afraid? When they heard the words of the Philistine. Because you have no fear of the Lord, then you don't hear the word of the Lord. And when you don't hear the word of the Lord, then what do you hear? You hear the word of man. And this led to the fear of man, again, all because of their lack of belief. Now, this begs the question for us right now, loved ones, as we look at this text and we see what's happening with Israel, we see what's happening with Saul, and of course, as you read God's word, you start to look at your own heart if the Holy Spirit's working here, and we start to ask ourselves these questions. Are, are we right now in our lives, are we more motivated by the fear of the Lord, or are we more motivated by the fear of man? Are we more captivated by the word of the Lord or are we more captivated by the word of men? Ask yourself this question, which voice is louder in our lives? The voice of our enemy or the voice of our God? Remember, you know what's coming. David's coming, man. David's coming. And apparently he's not going to be too phased by the word of man and Goliath. But see, that's the difference of someone who fears the Lord and someone who fears man. That's why I love so much that song. There's so many songs we can kind of bring up, but that song, Hosanna, uh, in your presence, 
we find strength to face the day. In the presence of the Lord, you have the fear of the Lord. You, you see him. You, 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 you know his majesty and his glory. And he's the one sitting on the throne, and he has you perfectly secure. In your presence, we find strength to face the day. Amen. In your presence, all our fears are washed away. Hosanna. It's awesome. I love it so much, right? In your presence, in the fear of God, my worldly fears go away. And when that happens, the tears start flowing down the cheeks because of how beautiful our God is and how powerful he is and how awesome he is. And you're like, I'm okay. I'm good. He, he's got me. I belong to him. And the world now, all of a sudden, their voice is pretty dim. Can't hear it. So what'd you say, world? What'd you say, dumb? Sorry, I'm too busy looking at my awesome God. And I'm his child. What do you want to tell me again, Satan? That's the power of the fear of the Lord. But you start fearing man. You start fearing man, and all of a sudden, the voices start ringing in our ears. This is what's happening to Israel. God, I pray that you would cause that not to happen to us. Because again, fear paralyzes. Worldly fear makes us just stick and can't move. And I'm so afraid. I don't want to do anything. That's not God's will for our lives. This is why um, the victorious Christian life in Christ, it's not trying harder. It's Christ in us. I've been so blessed. You've got to know this, okay? A part of this church. I love this church so much. I love, I love the people of this. I just, I just, love, I just love you. Um, to see the saints... There's a lot of saints right now walking towards heaven. And we've seen a lot of funerals happen over the last year and a couple of years. And we're going to see that. It's just that that's what I am so blessed by the saints in this church as they approach death, which is really life. They're like, I can't wait to be with Christ. Like literally saying, Lord, whenever you're ready, I'm ready. Like they're facing so many people in this world are just terrified. And they're there and they're like, Whatever you want, Lord, bring it. Because they have such a sense of God and he's real and he loves them and they've been saved for this purpose. They're, they're about to start life. And there they are saying, the joy they have in the midst of what is so worldly unexplainable, that's awesome. That's the testing we go through. But when God is so close to us, how powerful he is seen within our lives. So remember, it's in this scene of cowardice. So far there's been cowardice among Israel but it's the scene of cowardice that is now paving the way for one man, really one boy, with courage. And that's exciting. So God's people tested number two, this, God's man emboldened. God's man now emboldened. Now, look at verse 12, and notice the first, the first two words of verse 12. Now David, yes, right? So cowardly, cowardice, uh, shaking, dismayed, fear of man. And the Bible's like, oh yeah, here we go, here we go. Ready? Verse 12. Now David. And you get a sense of that. I read that this week. I'm like, yeah, David. So, so in the vacuum of courageous leadership, God provides his man. God always has his man or his woman. God always has them. Set aside, we learned, for a time such as this. Not just any man, a man after God's own heart. A man filled with tremendous courage. Okay, loved ones, watch this, okay? A man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart, is a man or woman filled with tremendous courage because it's God in them, right? They go together. 
You seek the Lord, you find strength. You seek the Lord, you find wisdom. You seek the Lord, you find joy. You have God in you, you find courage. David is, it's not David, right? Get that, it's not David. It's God in David. But David really wanted God. He was really going after God. And God filled his life. But it's all God. That's why it's God and Goliath, ultimately. But David wanted him. David hungered after him. David filled his life with him. And when we are after God's heart, we will find courage and strength to face the day. It's not that complicated. It's not hard, but, or it's not simple, but it's not that complicated. I want you to see verse 16. Look at verse 16. It says, For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took a stand morning and evening. Okay, so that's not insignificant. 40 days in Scripture is almost always associated with a time of testing. And without a doubt here, the people of God were being tested. It wasn't just like one morning, one day. I dare anyone to come fight me. 40 days in a row. Morning and night, twice a day, the challenge was issued from Goliath. So, fair to say, Saul has a chance. You think maybe after like day 11, Saul will be like, I'm fed up with it. Okay, let me add him. You know what I mean? 37? But 40 go by and not one guy is willing to do it. And this is the scene where David shows up. Now, we learn from the text that David was sent by his father, Jesse. David's showing up to the battle lines because he's just doing what he's told. He's there to feed his brothers. He arrives and the battle lines are being drawn between two armies. So David shows up. And the Philistines and the Israelites, they are forming their battle lines, so who knows what's going to happen next. And then Goliath appears again, and Goliath speaks. Now look at verse 23. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And look at the next four words, at least in my translation. It says, and David heard him. Now, those are some of my favorite words in this entire story. You know what I wrote in my Bible beside that sentence? I wrote, it's go time. Because, because translation for, and David heard him, the translation really for that is, Goliath is dead. He's dead. I just imagine the shepherd boy. I mean, shepherd boy. All the, all the army trained. There they all these men scared out of their minds. And David goes up and he hears Goliath who is standing. He turns and he hears him. And in his mind and heart, he's like, I'm going to kill that guy. And every other Israel's cowering somewhere, especially Saul. And there's David. That amazes me. That blesses me so much. And David heard him. Now, we know where this story is going, okay? We know what's going to happen. Boy, every single person in this room, unless you've been living in a cave somewhere forever, okay? You know what's going to happen. The question I have is then, how is it possible how is it possible that David, as a boy, basically, teenager, a shepherd at that, he's about to face a giant, he doesn't stand a chance, true? He doesn't stand a chance. Like unworldly terms, man, he's a little kid, he's a giant. He doesn't stand a chance. But of course, that's looking at this story through the eyes of man. But then we start to look at it through the eyes of God. And what do we start to see? We start to see that the true giant has really just showed up. David is the true giant. And he's going to make sure that Goliath knows that he's a dwarf. David's the giant. Goliath is the dwarf. 
But again, again, I say, okay, how? How is David used in this way? I want to know that because I want to look at my life through that examination and lens. There's five truths, five truths I want to answer that question by. They'll be on the screen to my left and behind me, I suppose. Five truths of why was David used? As he shows up, why was he used? Number one is this, okay? Number one answer here is this. Solitude with God. David's solitude with God proved to be his strength in the Lord. Now, do not underestimate what I just said. Don't do it. Do, yeah, solitude, yeah, yeah. do not underestimate that truth. Hindsight to the story tells us David shows up to the battle and he's 100% ready to go. He's 100% ready to fight Goliath when he shows up. Doesn't need more army training. Doesn't need to put on some kind of armor that Saul's going to try to get him to put on. He's, a, he, he's 100% ready to go right there, okay? So then someone look at the story and say, well, maybe he was part of the Navy SEALs or something like that. No, 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 no. He was in the shepherd's field. He was like by himself, like in quiet, just doing the job no one else wanted to do. But listen, listen, ready? Here, here it is. Here it is. The ways of God, not the ways of man. He wasn't under army training, but he was under God's training. He was under God's training. He was under a time where he was being trained in the communion with the Lord. Verse 14, okay, tells us again, he's the youngest of eight. His job was to feed sheep, so that makes no sense. So whatever David was doing in the shepherd's field, whatever, look right here, look right here, look right here. Whatever David was doing in the shepherd's field made him by far the most prepared man in the entire Israelite army to face and kill Goliath. He was the most prepared man in the whole army and he wasn't even a part of the army. Why? What was, he, what was happening in the shepherd's field? You know what was happening in, in the shepherd's field? He was seeking his God. He was loving his God. He was praying to his God. He was learning about his God. He was hearing from his God. He was trusting his God. Loved ones, I, I can't stress this. This meant so much to me this week, even as I thought about it. And I just, I confess to you at my study desk and writing this message as I realized when David shows up to the army feeding his brothers, he is so and fully prepared again to take down the greatest obstacle facing God's people. And why? Because he loved his God so much. You and I, we can never ever overestimate the power of our time, our communion with the Lord. That, that is where the battle is won, loved ones. This is why so many Christian lives are so weak. There is no relationship truly acting with the Lord. There is no communion with God. I mean, open up, look at your Bible a couple of seconds and going on to your day, right? Now, that's not guilt producing the conviction, though, to understand through prayer and seeking and surrender and repentance and God's word and my communion with him. When that battle is won, bring on the day. Again, I, I, I like your chances. <coughs> Excuse me. To somehow disregard that is I have to get busy doing something. We're missing the whole point. David shows up, man, he's ready. More than any other soldier. That's awesome. Reminds me of my grandpa. He was a pastor in the Anglican Church in small town Ontario. And I remember hearing stories about him, and he'd wake up every morning at dawn or something around there, 5.30, 
And one of my um, cousins described him as at his funeral. I remember the story well. He described him as Grandpa Simons, and and he would every morning wake up like a soldier, and go and meet his God. Never had a massive church, never had some grand ministry, but he had his God. He was faithful, and every morning as a soldier, he went up with word in hand to pray to his God. See, see that that's the real army training right there. See, and David got that. Remember, remember, man. I'm not I'm not embellishing a story for you to be impressed. You're seeing it right here. He showed up prepared, and no one else was. And you know the answer right now. You know the single greatest reason he was. It's because he was pursuing his God with passion. Not so God will say, way to go, David, way to go. Now I'm proud of you. No, 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 because he loved him so much, and he was so ready. Number two, watch this, um, a heart to serve. Why was David used? He had a heart to serve. Notice in verse 13, okay, why don't you look at verse 13. David's three oldest brothers are with the army. But David had four other brothers. So why didn't Jesse send them? Can't say for sure, but under God's sovereignty, God's like this day is when David's going to be used in a massive way. But David, right, eager to serve, man, eager, humble, ready, servant's heart. And David's life would never be the same again. He's ready to go, loved ones. He's meeting with his God. He's, Lord, Lord, here's my life. Here's my life. Use it. Use it. And God's like, okay, today, your dad's going to ask you to go feed your brothers. He's going to ask you. He's like, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll go. I'll feed my brothers in the army and just kind of tend the sheep and go them. And, and God's like, yeah, you'll do that. And you'll do more than that too. You know, I wonder how much we've missed out on, on our lives because we haven't had a readiness to serve. You ever, just, just, just look at your life right now and just ask the question, how much have we possibly missed out on because of our unwillingness to serve? So much of life in Christ is showing up. So much of our life is showing up, showing up to meet the Lord, showing up in prayer, showing up in serving, show, showing up to be used by Him. He's saying, Lord, here's, here's a, you know what I love to do too each day? I mean, every single day, but most days I put my day before the Lord. God, here's my day. Would you guide my thoughts? Would you cover my speech? And would you guide my actions? Lord, thought were indeed. Here's my day. I give it to you. Would you use me as you desire and as you would decide in how I think, the words I say, and the actions that I live? Because I want this day to be for your glory. I want to bear fruit for you. Whatever it is, Lord, you take it and you do that. Um, I'm pretty confident if you take that prayer before the Lord on a, on a sincere daily basis, you will find yourself being moved in certain directions in thought, word, and deed uh, for the glory of God. This is why David was used. I want you to notice, too, notice, notice number one feeds into number two. If you don't have number one, this isn't going to be the same, okay? And then look at number three here. Put, put number three, and notice this. This leads into two, and two leads into three, right? So solitude and the heart to serve, and, of course, that is going to produce an integrity that God is powerfully working within, a proven integrity. Now, this could easily be missed. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. Moving around different parts of scripture. Look at this. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep by themselves. No, no. What does it say? And left the sheep with a keeper. The attention to detail, the, the, the responsibility for what he had. And took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. Now David being a, a young teen, he'd be really excited. I'm going to go to the front lines of the army. I can see what's happening or whatever. Visit my brothers. And he could just, ah, oh, the sheep would be fine. But not our David. He does his job. 
You could easily miss that. That's important, though. What is that? It's integrity. He was living the life in his present to be used in the future. He doesn't abandon responsibility. Integrity, question, can we say the same? Why is it hard to get a job without a resume? Because our resume reflects our path faithfulness. And this is the power of integrity before the Lord. David had integrity with big and small, with small and big. So often our heart is reflected in the details. Do you know that? So often our heart is reflected in the details. And again, one, two, three, solitude, a heart to serve, and the integrity that comes from his life. Now look at number four here. Notice this, a resolve within opposition. He had a resolve within opposition. So David gets there, and wouldn't you know, whenever God's at work, right, the enemy's trying to come in and discourage us as well. Look at verse 24 now. I want to read this for us. And the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich uh, the man who kills him with great riches and will give him a daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In my margin, amen. And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now watch this, ready? Remember Eliab? Remember the oldest brother? Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to them. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Why is Eliab so concerned with David's sheep all of a sudden? I know your presumption, the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. And David said, this is very telling. David said, what have I done now? Probably didn't say it like that, okay? He said it. He said it probably nicer than that. But he said, what have I done now, man? Like, I, I can't do anything right. Are you, are you after me again? He's like, was it, was it not but a word? And he turned away from him. That was a turning point right there for David. And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Okay, so this is fascinating. As David breaks out with courage, Eliab breaks out with jealousy. Remember, remember, David was simply following orders from his dad. What were his orders? Feed your brothers. Who is one of his brothers? Eliab. Eliab, man, he's there to feed you, buddy. Don't you get a little bit of thanks? Can't there be any kind of gratitude, thankfulness for that? But loved ones, this is the wickedness and evil of jealousy and envy. Jealousy and envy is irrational evil. In verse 28, notice the venom in those words. There's just, he's spewing venom. I know the evil and the presumption of your heart. I just got to take a moment to ask this, okay? Hey, has jealousy crept into your life in certain areas? Has envy crept into your life? You know what, you know what Eliab does here? It doesn't matter what David did. He's going to find the wrong that he sees and just attack and accuse. That's what jealousy and envy does. You just want to hurt the person because you want what they have. So you, whatever you can do, you just, you just you hurt them, often with words, and attack them to break them down to make yourself feel better. It's wicked. It's wicked. That's what jealousy and and envy does now, no doubt, in this room right now, there's so many different situations where you are tempted as I. Identify it, loved ones. You can't win, okay? You cannot win with your envy. I cannot win with mine. You cannot win with jealousy. You will not win. You will not win. 
The enemy's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you'll win, you'll win, you'll win. The enemy's dumb, okay? Don't listen to him. All he does is lie. But the Bible tells the truth. We will be the ones who get hurt the most. So there's the side of the sin of the jealousy and envy. But I want to see on David's side, okay? And I want you to see as he's about to be so fantastically used by the Lord, the opposition comes. And isn't it true that sometimes our greatest opposition comes within the people that really should love us the most? A family, um, um, people close to us, inside the church. It's amazing how I think that's to be true too. But if we're going to be men and women of courage for Christ these times of opposition will be some of our great tests. Notice here, I believe if David gives in to this moment, Eliab can accuse him, and it says, and he turned away. I think if David rips into him and says, you want to fight Eliab? Let's go, man, right now, you and me, come on, man, come on. I believe right there he doesn't slay Goliath. But because he's a man after God's own heart, he listens to what Eliab says, he just turns and ignores, and he begins to engage with someone else. And that allows him to continue to be a man of integrity, a resolve within opposition. He's there to honor his God, and he continues to walk by faith. So we have solitude with God, a heart to serve, prove integrity, resolve in opposition. Why was he used? Fifthly, this. This is a huge one. He had a faith that saw the future. He had a faith that saw the future. So look at verse 31 here. Verse 31 says, Now when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but of youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. What's happening here? Fear of man, fear of man, fear of man. No faith. Saul has no faith. Watch this. Saul has no future. Can't see. Can't see the present. Can't see the future. No faith. No future. What did Saul see? He saw the limitations through the eyes of man. David saw the opportunities for God. David then says, and summarize it for you, he says, oh, Saul, but I've killed lions and bears, and Goliath is going to be next. In verse 36, he says, there are the armies of the living God. See, if Saul had faith, he'd know that his God is very much alive and very much ready to do what God wants to do. David saw this. My God's alive, man. He's going to be with me. Saul then listened to David, and then he suggests, well then, uh, take my armor. Notice this. Saul was very eager for David to wear his armor, yet he would not dare to wear it himself. That's not very good leadership right there. There's no faith. There's no faith. David tries it on. He says, no good, no good. He says, I don't want this. Haven't tested them. Grabs his sling, finds five smooth stones. Do you, know, do you want to know why David grabbed five smooth stones? I have no idea, all right? <laughs> Someone just said four brothers. Some guys think that's why, but I'm not going to say I fully know the answer here. And then it says, and the text says here, ready? It says, and he approached the Philistine. I love that. Here he goes, right? He showed up, man. He was ready. He was ready. Living the text, loved ones. He gets his sling, gets his five stones, and he starts walking towards this, this, this little shepherd boy. It's awesome, but he, he wasn't alone, was he? No, no, no. He had his Lord with him, and he starts, no one else would do it, and he starts walking towards him. God's man was emboldened. God's man was full of faith. Why? Because all he saw was his God. We were given a plaque um, by some friends of the church a little while ago. This is what it said. Don't tell God that you have a big problem. Tell your problem that you have a big God. That's good, huh? That's good. I like looking at that sometimes. I commend that to you. You can say that too. 
Hey, problem. I got a big God. That's what David's doing, right? Saul was the opposite, man. Oh, no, oh, no, no. And David's like, you should check out my God, you know? I love this too. The Israelites, they saw Goliath's size and they say, he's so big we can't win. And David saw the size of Goliath and said, he's so big I can't miss. <laughs> it's true. It's true. No hesitation. And you see the difference? God is the difference. And loved ones, when you see the Lord, what else do you see? You see victory. God's people tested. God's man emboldened. Thirdly, God's victory secured. Look at verse 41. I want to read these verses because this is such a great story. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. So it's kind of two on one. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give you your flesh through the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. Here it is. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the guard of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord, this is great. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Okay, is that faith or what, huh? He's like, here's exactly what's going to go down, big boy, all right? I'm going to kill you. I'm going to strike you down, and I'm going to cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear. For the, underline this, okay, highlight, do that. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Amen is right. Can you see why our sermon title is God and Goliath? The battle is the Lord's. I come to you in the name of the Lord. What is David? He's just, a, he's just an instrument of God. So filled with the Lord. So filled with faith. He predicts exactly what's going to happen. He's a shepherd boy. But he's very close to his God. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you notice into our hand. So David's not just in it for himself. David is here representing now God's people. For God's glory, our hand, he says. You know, so many people in this world, they fight for themselves. They try to control things themselves. So many people try to save themselves. No ones don't do that, okay? No, 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 no. The battle is the Lord's. So we surrender to his power. Notice faith doesn't stand still here. True faith is placed in God. Faith is not placed in ourselves. And now look at verse 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Okay, I told you certain kind of DVDs I'm playing in heaven. This is one of them right here for sure. Okay. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. People say, well, he had a helmet, so how did he strike him in the forehead? It's called God empowered the stone so much it just broke right through his helmet and smashed his forehead. Killed him. It's awesome. The stone sank into his forehead and fell on his face to the ground. I actually wrote in my Bible here too beside that. I wrote timber. Timber. wonder when I did that. I think like we should cheer or something, don't you? Just like that's such an exciting thing that just happened. And David goes out in 40 days of this challenge. Isn't it so true? One, one man with God is majority. One man with God is majority. So God and Goliath or David and the dwarf. This is why I love underdogs so much. I cheer for underdogs almost all the time. I think it's because secretly it's spiritual. 
right? I mean, the whole gospel is such an underdog thing. David here, such an underdog, but the Lord loves underdogs. All the odds are against him, all the odds. And he secures this incredible, gigantic victory. And now verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell in the way from Sharam. And as far as Gath and Ekron, the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines. They plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. So this is not just a defeat for the Philistines. This is a crushing, humiliating, dominating defeat with no room for doubt. And this is our God. And this is what our God does through a simple little shepherd boy. So no, when you imagine this scene, I had to, I had to find a picture just to kind of what this was maybe like and what David did. I mean, it's just, any young kids in the room? It's, it's, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Right? It's okay. But just, but just like this happened. You know, and whatever it looked like exactly, but there's David, the head of Goliath, and then the Israelites cheer. Man, what a moment. What a moment. So what do we do with all of this right now? How do we kind of tie this all up? You know, the story of David and Goliath has been used for many years to describe how we battle the giants of our lives. But I don't really think that's where this is going in this text. Let's make sure we properly define true giants. I don't want us to miss the forest through the trees. When you look at a, through a lens of the New Testament, this passage here, Goliath becomes a symbol of Satan, uh, accusing, threatening, opposing the obvious enemy. David, of course, becomes a type of Christ. And that is very clear. David is a type of Christ, uh, foreshadowing, looking forward uh, to the New Testament. So think about it then. We ponder the true battles that we face, right? So when someone preaches this text, they'll be like, okay, well, you got to, you know, fight the giants and God's with you in giants. What kind of giants? Well, you know, the debt I'm under, uh, my family, you know, situation, uh, my health issue, uh, uh, trying to find employment. Those things are all legit. Like, they're all legit issues. But I don't think those are our true giants. If you want to talk about true giants, step back a couple of paces and now look and, and see the bigger picture and ask these questions. Is there any greater battle we face than our sin? Is there any greater enemy we face than death? Is there any greater accuser that we will face than Satan? Now, we can't defeat sin. We can't defeat death. We can't defeat Satan. It doesn't matter how many stones you have in your sling. You're not, you're not, you're not knocking those things down. But there's one who can. When Jesus Christ comes and lives and dies and is raised from the dead, he absolutely annihilates sin, death, and Satan. He crushes them all. And anyone who believes in Jesus Christ and his grace 
through faith, they become a victor with Jesus Christ, and they can stare in the face of sin, death, and Satan and say, where is your victory? Loved ones, you and I cannot do that in ourselves. We cannot find this victory, but Jesus Christ has found the victory, and when we place our lives and faith in him, he lives in us and saves us, and we are no longer dead. We are now alive, but it's a hundred percent what he has done. The greatest application of this passage in our lives right now is the gospel. David as a type of Christ, because you might be concerned about your health, I understand, and your finances, I understand, but the greatest concern by far is your eternal future. And whether or not you're with Satan in hell or with Christ in the hope of glory forever and ever, amen. Those are the true giants in life, but we can't defeat those giants. But Christ already has. And this will become so glorious. And he has done it on our behalf. And right now, when we think about that and we understand that through Jesus Christ, we have freedom and forgiveness and favor, and our future is absolutely secure. Jesus Christ is our victory. It's done 100%. Finito, it's complete. And our opportunity then, our opportunity right now, right now again, is to live in that truth. To live in the truth has been completely, perfectly accomplished for us. Yes, lovers will be tested. God grant us courage. But God, most of all, give us the eyes to see the victory. The victory is ours and the battle has been won. All because of him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray.